everybody. Happy Friday and welcome to The Skinny on WMNF 88.5. I'm your host, Ben Montgomery. I am flying solo-ish. Uh, Got my boy Spaceship over here uh, on the keys. <laughs> I am uh, missing, though, uh, uh, my other friends, Mitch Perry from the Florida Phoenix and Ray Roa, who's the executive director of Creative Loafing. As you know, those guys typically join me here on Fridays, 11 a.m. Uh, for The Skinny, this still relatively new show. Uh, I am here alone again in studio, missing those boys, but it's not all bad. I like to be alone sometimes. Uh, and the place around here that I often go to find solitude, this is not a commercial, uh, is the Green Swamp. Have you been there? Um, I, I did that this weekend. I pointed my Jeep north on US 301 and headed up to Dade City, toward Dade City, uh, and then zagged over to the Green Swamp and parked at a little turnoff where you can find access to what is called the Western Tract of the Florida Trail. The trail splits right through the Green Swamp and there's an Eastern Tract. And I tend to go to the Western Tract. Uh, I walked a long ways. I saw wading birds, I saw two gopher tortoises and a handful of gators uh, sliding around the Withlacoochee. It was pretty cool. Um, the great Wendell Berry, uh, the poet, once wrote, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound and fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests and his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. That's Wendell Berry. I don't begrudge Mr. Berry his wood drake or his great heron, but I find my peace as I did on Saturday on Earth Day uh, when I slip off my shoes on the banks of Withlacoochee and step in uh, to the tannic brackish water um, with a handful of alligators. <laughs> and as peculiar as that sounds, there's something thrilling and exhilarating about sharing water at a safe distance with these beasts. Uh, I'd like for my children to have that experience. They sort of have occasionally at the Whirl on the Hillsborough River. They'll jump off the pontoon boat. And once in a while, uh, I've dragged a daughter out to the Green Swamp for some rope swinging. Um, anyhow, I would like for their children to have that option if they so choose and to preserve that for them takes effort from all of us. And we're talking later in the hour with Max Chesnes, the environmental reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, about a handful of issues that are affecting our state. But first, before we talk about the earth, we're going to turn our attention to the University of South Florida, where five students are facing possible criminal charges, loss of employment and expulsion uh, for essentially protesting last month to set the stage for this. If you haven't heard, in early March, about 25 members of Tampa Bay Students for a Democratic Society marched from the Marshall Student Center to the Patel Center for Global Solutions, where they requested a meeting with USF President Rhea Law, whose office is in that building. The group had a couple of concerns, uh, House Bill 999, chief among them, uh, and essentially Governor Ron DeSantis' plans to rid higher education of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. 
a task well underway. Uh, they also had some valid questions about how USF was protecting marginalized students. But eventually there was a clash with police. You may have seen the videos which have gotten a lot of attention online. And we'll get into that a little bit because the particulars here kind of matter. Uh, to help us do that, let's bring on our first guest, Ariel Stevenson, my dear friend, uh, who has been covering this saga for Creative Loafing. Thank you for joining us, Ariel. How are you? Hey, Ben. Happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Can you set the stage for us? You uh, were there or weren't there uh, the day the day this protest happened? I wasn't there. The The early reporting was done by my really talented former colleague, Justin Garcia. Um, he did all of the kind of on the ground uh, reporting those first few weeks um, before he joined the Tampa Bay Times. And, um, you know, SDS has the Students for a Democratic Society, which all, all of the folks that were uh, arrested, and I'll say they're not facing possible criminal charges now. They have been charged have this been week charged. by the state by the state attorney's office. The fifth person I haven't seen, uh, I haven't checked the court records this morning. I don't think the fifth person uh, who was retroactively going to be charged has been charged yet. She had her student code of conduct hearing yesterday. But um, going back, you know, uh, Students for Democratic Society at at USF, they have actions pretty frequently and have you know, for as many years as I've been reporting. So, um, you know, it wasn't out of the blue for them to do something like this. Um, it was about 20 students and, um, you know, they, you know, requested a meeting with the president, which she wasn't in the building as far as I know that day. Um, and you can watch on video, you know, the police were already there when they arrived. Um, what do you kind of see on the video? How, how does this, uh, how does this set off? You see, you know, some like very young uh, students uh, with a banner um, uh, asking for increased black enrollment and asking for uh, majors like gender studies and any uh, majors that deal with uh, the issues of race um, to be protected by the university, to have the university stand up and say something say, you know, to the effect that those majors would be protected. Mm -hmm. So they're there. There's about 15 or 20 of them coming in. They have a banner. They're on their phones. They're chanting. Um, everything's pretty calm and the cops are behind them and the banners in front. So everybody kind of has their backs to the cops. And you see a conversation start to happen. Chief Chris Daniels, who's the USF uh, police chief, um, you see conversations start to happen between um, uh there's Gia Davila, um, there's a few others, and slowly the conversation starts to get more and more animated. And you watch the others at the protest kind of to the side, pull out their phones and start filming. That's one great thing about what's happened in this instance. That's, you know, lots of videos, so, ma so many videos. I have about 15 videos um, you know, including one that law enforcement uh, had had filmed um, that, you know, wasn't a body cam because they don't have they didn't have body cameras yet. Now they're going to be having body cameras moving this forward. One of the new stipulations, right, brought about because this, yeah. now the, the campus police will wear body cams. Yeah. And 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 from what I uh, understand, USF says that that was something that was already in process. I don't know if that's the case uh, necessarily, but as a result of what happened on March 6th, um, the, all USF police will wear body cameras. But what happens is you see one of the officers put his hands on a protester as this discussion gets more and more animated, um, you know, and the other protesters around them 
there's no announcement of arrest at that point, from what I understand. Um, you know, they start to pull her back and, and, and it just it just turns into chaos. It just turns into officers. Uh, you watch Gia Davila, who's one of the Tampa Five, get, you know, thrown on the ground. Uh, they're alleging that she was groped by USF. Well, she's saying uh, as much, police right? Chief. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you see, you know, the photos and the videos, um, everyone can determine for themselves. But I mean, you watch, you know, where his hands go and you can see on the video. So they're alleging, you know, that there was sexual assault in addition to everything. And the police are saying that they this was battery on a law enforcement officer. They're, they're all claiming that an officer validity. suffered minor injuries, right? Yeah, they have pictures of bruises, apparent, uh, allegedly. And um, they, you know, before uh, the charges were filed on Monday, I believe, uh, the state attorney filed charges on Monday. Before that happened, I, you know, had been told that they had been offered a, was it a pre-court uh, diversion right. um, to like a deal, you know, and they had asked the students to write letters of apology to their individual officers. And from what I was told, they were then you know, those officers got to decide if they accepted that apology. Mm. Um, and none of the students wanted to participate in that uh, scenario. Yeah. And so they've been charged. So how is the school handling this internally? What is uh, uh, the president of the university saying, Ray Law? What's she telling um, faculty? Yeah, in a in a faculty Senate meeting uh, last week, uh, Wednesday, last Wednesday, the 19th, um, Ray Law, President Ray Law, you know, talked to the faculty about what happened. Um, she addressed it, you know, pretty in pretty deep detail and made her feelings about it very well known. Um, and she's very much uh, siding with the police in this instance. Um, and it's interesting that she said all of this in the faculty senate meeting because uh, the way that the student code of conduct process goes. Uh, it's like made up of some students and some staff. It's like a panel and they get to decide what happens to these, these students, these kids, um, two of whom are supposed to graduate next week yeah. and might not yeah. um, graduate. So, so and do they have a chance to out. appeal? Do they, do they present their case? Is that the, what's the process? Yeah. And, yeah so they, they present all the evidence is kind of presented at the student code of conduct hearing. One was, uh, yesterday and the other was Wednesday. And they won't find out if they're graduating until two days beforehand. Um, and, uh, you know, it could really constitute a conflict of interest what President Law did, which was, you know, make her feelings very well known. And she said in that meeting that the people in the building adjacent, she said, I heard yesterday, you know, she doesn't say who, she doesn't say where, she doesn't provide any documentation of this uh, claim that the people in the building believed it was an active shooter situation. And, you know, she doesn't compare it necessarily, but she evokes that language uh, for these students that are facing felony charges now for felony, felony battery on a law enforcement officer. So that really could constitute a conflict of interest, considering some of the people in that meeting might be making that decision. Ariel, let me address this. Sometimes these incidents uh, sort of have a feeling of a charade in the sense that um, almost similar to like, uh, like when a soccer player takes a fall, for instance. Was that the case in this? Is it your judgment that um, some of these allegations from the protesters are, are, are sort of overplayed for the, for the purpose of sort of being heard? 
Uh, you mean the, the folks that are being charged are overplaying what happened or the police are? That's my question on both sides. Okay. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, you've seen the video, hard. you've watched all the I've angles. I've seen the video. Yeah. I see, you know, young people who are not a physical threat in my estimation being thrown to the ground, pulled, dragged, hit. I see them being physically overpowered by law enforcement officers in those videos. Yeah. Um, I don't see what physical threat the people in that video would pose to law enforcement, but clearly they have said, and they apparently there's video or photos of like bruises, uh, I guess that law enforcement says that they sustained, um, you know, but in my estimation from the many videos I've watched, it seems fairly obvious to me that the police did not handle the situation in the way that they should have. And in fact, part of the action plan that USF has put into place as a result of this, of course, uh, is more trainings for law enforcement in how to handle uh, these kind of uh, situations. But I mean, it's interesting what Ray Law says, which is that the protesters disrupted a normal business day. And that's not how you protest. And I'm sorry, but I believe that's exactly how you protest. Um, I think that's the entire point is to disrupt a business day. Um, so, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that the deck is stacked against these students. Um, and I mean, they're, they're young, they're scared. They're going up against law enforcement and the university. They're sacrificing possibly years of work in school. Two of the students are four years deep into a degree. They can they could get kicked out. They could lose everything. And even if they wanted to go to another school, it'll be on their permanent record. So, I mean, it seems like a huge overreaction on the part of the university, especially considering Ray Law is a new president. Um, but I think that a lot of this has to do with pressure from on high from the state, from DeSantis. People are self-censoring in fear of reaction from him and his constituents, in my opinion. Ariel, where can people uh, uh, read more about this? And you're following uh, these hearings as they, as they go on today? Yeah, yeah. You can read about it um, on Creative Loafing at cltampa.com. Um, I post it to my Twitter at Stevenson Report um, often, and um, we'll definitely be following this because one, I'll also say that one uh, of the people involved was already fired on Tuesday as well. A campus worker was fired as a result of this. So mm. the consequences are pretty intense. The stakes are really high, and we'll definitely be keeping uh, aware of everything that's going on. Stay tuned to Creative Loafing Tampa for continued coverage from our friend Ariel Stevenson. Thank you so much for joining us and for updating us on this important situation, Ariel. Thanks, Ben. Take care. We talked a few weeks ago with Gil Smart, who was uh, policy director for Friends of the Everglades, about some concerning pro-developer legislation uh, at play this legislative session up in Tallahassee. Our friend Mitch Perry is up there uh, covering some of that. Um, and, and right now, I'd like to bring on uh, Mac Chesnes. Recording in progress. Who, uh, who reports on the environment for the Tampa Bay Times. Um, before that, Mac's covered environmental issues for the Treasure Coast newspapers and USA Today Network. Uh, and he spent a lot of time kicking around uh, South Florida and the areas of the Indian River Lagoon and so forth. Um, uh, Max, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Of course, yeah, it's great to be here. And you're working, uh, you're working on something new down in uh, down in um, uh, Southwest Florida, right? 
Yeah, I'm here. Uh, I'm speaking right now to you from Fort Myers Beach. Uh, I'm here for a few days, um, just checking in with some locals, seeing uh, how the recovery process has gone. Obviously, you know, hurricane season is creeping up on us ever so slowly. Um, it happens every year, Max. What the? I, I, yeah. I, we, <laughs> we should get a break every, uh, you know, every once yeah, in a we while. Should. We sure should, but um, down here, the the old hurricane season obviously never left. And so um, we were just keeping tabs on on recovery and, and making sure everyone there knows that, um, you know, everyone in Tampa Bay cares about, about what's happening down there. Max, you were down there right after the storm, right? Yeah, I was there uh, the day after landfall, um, less than 24 hours after. And, um, you know, I've covered several hurricanes uh, during my time as a reporter, I covered Dorian in 2019 in the Bahamas. And to see the amount of surge that Ian brought has been um, something that's really hard to reconcile with. And um, even walking around yesterday, you can see some of the, the water lines um, that are still on the walls and in houses. And um, I mean, just towering over your head. It's it's unfathom unfathomable to um, to see it firsthand. And um you know, you can you can tell there's definitely been progress since landfall. But um, I was speaking with the the fire chief yesterday, the new fire chief of Fort Myers Beach, and he he said he predicts it won't be for another five or ten years where there'll be no evidence of the storm at all. So there's a long road left of recovery, hmm. and uh, there's a lot of work still left to be done. We know because we all watched uh, television and so forth in the days after that storm. We know that the built environment was badly damaged, and we know the ways in which it was damaged. Um, and that was, of course, widespread. Can you tell any anything walking around or talking to people? Uh, uh, do, do you know anything about the effects on the natural environment uh, down there? Did this reshape shoreline? Did it erode beach? Did it cause problems that oh, yeah. don't have to do with housing? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I think one of the most just visual impacts you see when you're walking around is deforestation. Um, the amount of downed trees is prevalent everywhere. Um, even from above, you know, I brought my drone drone with me and flying above these scenes, um, there's just, it's almost like a barren moonscape because of how much sand is exposed now. And um, obviously that has coastal erosion implications um, with other storms, you know, uh, mangroves act as a natural barrier to um, to surge. And so when storms wipe those natural vegetation out, obviously there's implications for, for future flooding. Um, so that's one major impact, obviously. Um, directly after the storm, there was a lot of sunken vessels that were leaking gasoline. Um, obviously those have been mitigated um, since landfall, but you still see a lot of of boats that are scattered around that are on dry land that are perched up in the mangroves that mm. are still there and um you know who knows what type of fluids are still leaking out of those so um the environmental impacts certainly are um are widespread there's also you know rainfall runoff in the days that that happened right after the storm that brought with it you know whether it's fertilizer or sewage anything that was on dry land got swept out into sea and into the uh the local waterways and so that impact will surely be felt for a while and that uh the theory goes uh helped to feed a bloom of red tide that started sometime uh late last year or uh, actually early last fall right uh, sometime around october a big bloom uh, discovered off the coast of Southwest Florida. And the suspicion was uh, that these hurricanes were feeding this and that this 
season, this sort of red tide season that we find ourselves in, would be uh, would be particularly bad. But that's not exactly playing out like that, right? Red tide hasn't uh, been affected Pinellas County beaches, Hillsborough County, uh, in the, the the way in which many people predicted early on, yeah. right? Yeah, well, there, there is a there's a common misconception that um, Hurricane Ian caused the red tide. And every scientist that I've spoken with has said that that's not the case. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's causation. It doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily mean it's correlated just because it flared up right after the storm doesn't mean the storm caused it. But mm. one th- one thing scientists are still looking at is, is the intensity of the red tide bloom. And um, the current theory is that, you know, in the in the first few weeks after the storm, there's so much fertilizer, so much nutrients, whether it's nitrogen or phosphorus in the water that acts as a sort of fuel for these blooms. And that sticks around for maybe, you know, two or three weeks, the red tide feeds on this, but after a while that gets used up. And so the blooms that we were seeing earlier this year, whether it was February, even into March, those blooms would have continued whether or not there was a hurricane Ian. Um, and, and you're right, the intensity of this year's red tide bloom, and, and it's been a very persistent bloom. It's very, very stubborn. It, it ebbs and flows up and down the coast, but it hasn't been really widespread like a blanket across the coastline like we've seen in, in other years like 2018 and even um, in 2021. Mm. Um, but, you know, I checked just this morning and the conditions are looking much better than they were even a month ago. Um, there's only I think there was only one hit for a red tide bloom, um, one water sample this week in Pinellas. Um, whereas the peak, I believe, was somewhere around January, we were seeing um, a lot of, of high-end balloon water samples that were being picked up. But yeah, it's definitely looked better in, the, in recent days, um, which is a good news, obviously, for anyone who wants to spend some time on the beach. Good news for businesses, good news for beachgoers, uh, good news certainly for fish uh, that don't wind up <laughs> or wind up dead in fewer numbers, perhaps, uh, on sure. our beaches. Yeah. Um, uh, Max, why, why, uh, why does red tide dissipate? Why, I mean, how is it that things get better? Um, do we know that? Well, that's one of the big scientific mysteries right now is what ends a bloom. And there are a lot of theories. I don't think there's one general consensus yet, at least from, you know, the red tide researchers that I speak with pretty regularly. They're still trying to unlock this puzzle piece of what is that final answer that really gets this red tide to to fade away? And obviously, if we knew that, I think the mitigation strategies would be way more informed because mm. if we knew how if we knew how a bloom ended, then we would know what to do to stop one. And so, um, you know, there's a theory that it, it uses up all of the, the nutrients in the available environment, whether it's nitrogen or a natural occurring nitrogen that we see in the in the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one solution. But there's also ocean currents that play a role, um, wind. And so there's kind of a confluence of biology, chemistry and physics that all work together for red tide blooms. And somewhere in the middle of those three things is is the answer for these these blooms dissipating. And they're not quite certain yet on what that number is or what that piece is. Yeah. If you're uh, just joining us, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF 88.5. If you'd like to uh, give us a call uh, and ask a question to Max or me, 813-239-9663 or send us an email, dj at wmnf.org. We're uh, talking with Tampa Bay Times environmental reporter Max Chesnes, 
who um, has been covering uh, an assortment of things, including a very interesting story uh, out of Pasco County. Um, Max, can you set the stage for us on this? Um, there were some uh, folks, it turns out, who liked watching a uh, bald eagle nest in a big, tall pine tree somewhere ne- near Lake Jovita. And they, yeah. they watched these uh, eagles being eagles for about 20 years, right? Um, yeah. And, th- and then take yes. it from there. What happened? Definitely. So um, I'll take it back to the beginning of this year's legislative session. I was creating a roundup of bills that I was watching, specifically water quality bills. And the one that I kept hearing about that was raising a lot of concern in in not only environmental circles, but also local government circles, um, was this bill sponsored by uh, Representative Randy Maggard of, of Dade City. And essentially what this bill would do is um, it would strip all authority at the local level um, for local governments to instill water quality protections. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would preempt that to the state. And so um, knowing that and knowing that this bill existed, we started hearing um, about some rumblings in Pasco County about this bald eagle's nest um, that for a long time was a staple of the community. Uh, a lot of people that live along this lake called Lake Jovita in Dade City, um, had looked up to this eagle's nest like sort of a beacon of, of their community for years. Um, and then when the property changed hands a few years ago, one day that eagle's nest went missing. And, and so we started digging around and we found um, that the owner of this property um, is the nephew of the sponsor of this water quality preemption bill. Imagine that. And so, <laughs> imagine that. And so we started connecting the dots. We, we pulled some records from um, both the state level. There was a state inspector with the um, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission who um, had a couple really detailed reports about this eagle nest and particularly of the day or day or a- day after that this eagle nest went missing. And so we drew on those reports, and then we also drew on some documents um, from the county level. There was some county inspectors that went on to um, Representative Maggard's nephew's property um, and found that there were some native tree species that were slashed without permits. Um, mm-hmm. And so we wrote about that, and we sort of tied this all together with this um, this bad bill that was going through the legislature that is ultimately, by the way, um, it, is, it is effectively dead. There's no more movement on this bill right now in the legislature. Uh, when those inspectors uh, went on the property, they discovered uh, that a tractor had been mowing down plants within 100 feet of, of the eagle's nest. Clearing the landscaping should be done no closer than 330 feet from an active nest, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. There were a number of different um, violations, but the county hadn't uh, issued any uh, violations, right? That's right. Yeah, we uh, we brought, obviously, the violations to the county and, and said um, – you know, why wasn't this enforced? Were there penalties involved in these these trees and also this missing eagle nest? Both the state and the county told us that there were no penalties. Um, and uh, we kept, you know, digging around. And obviously, um, Representative Maggard's nephew is also related to um, a Pasco County commissioner. Um, and it appears like this issue on this property was elevated through the chains of command in the local county government until the point where it effectively disappeared without any penalties. This uh, wouldn't have, would this have come on your radar had it not been for the concern of these uh, neighboring residents who uh, sort of continued to watch these eagles and to call about their suspicions? 
Well, I think, you know, it obviously, they're a crucial part of the story because these are community members that value their natural environment, that really adored seeing these eagles. And, you know, they came to us with their concerns and they wanted to put those concerns on the record. So, you know, in, in Tallahassee, there were, you know, there was talk about this bill and how it was linked to this incident in Pasco County. Um, but we really wanted to kind of get to the crux of it. And the story really, really lies with those neighbors that saw it firsthand. David Bryant says uh, that bald eagle story really caught my attention. And thanks to Max for covering it. I think the story deserves some national attention. It's shameful that Margaret is pushing the bill to help his nephew. The grift and self-dealing by the Florida legislature continues to astound me. Thanks for that email, David. If you'd like to write in, send us an email at dj at wmnf.org or give us a phone call at 813-239-9663. Feel free to ask a question of Max here. We've got him for a few more minutes. Um, By the way, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF, and I'm Ben Montgomery. And Max, we uh, sure appreciate you sticking around. So you reported in early February that Tampa Bay lost 12% of its seagrass in recent years, according to a new survey, uh, leaving the Upper Bay with an all-time low amount of the plant crucial to life in Florida's largest open water estuary. Um, What's going on with seagrass in, in Tampa Bay, Max? Yeah, so this is the first time since uh, state water quality monitors have been surveying the bay in 88 that we've seen three consecutive surveys of losses of seagrass in Tampa Bay. So in other words, Tampa Bay has lost about 30% of its seagrass since the peak of restoration right around 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And this latest survey that came out earlier this year which looks at a two-year window, um, the Bay lost 12% um, in just the two-year period, which uh, is alarming. You know, the first the first survey that came out that showed losses, a lot, of, a lot of the talk in the scientific community was, well, it could be a one-off, you know, we'll keep an eye on it, we need to maintain our restoration progress. And then the second survey came out, which showed more losses. And then the urgency picked up a little bit there. And then this year, with the third survey showing more losses, it's become a pattern. And this is the first time that scientists have logged a decline in Tampa Bay's seagrass in three consecutive studies, you report, since the tracking began in 1988. That's right. And in certain sections of the bay are worse than others. So Old Tampa Bay, which is the northwest quadrant, the northwest transect of the bay itself, um, lost, I think it was around 30% of its seagrass in two years. And so this is, uh, these are major losses and it's synonymous to what we're seeing on the East coast of Florida with the Indian river lagoon. Obviously that was the, the, uh, epicenter of the manatee die off, which Ben, I know, you know about that. You've been reporting about that manatee die off yourself too. And, um, it, and it's Tampa Bay is, is now becoming, um, you know, it's, there's warning signs that say that there is issues here and, uh, they need to be addressed in order to restore the bay and return it to levels that we saw even less than a decade ago. What causes seagrass loss? Yeah, there's a number of things. I think right now in the bay, um, there's two main factors that scientists are looking at, although there's a confluence of things that are affecting it overall. One is um, freshwater inputs, whether it's polluted rainfall runoff or freshwater input from the Hillsborough River. That's one big loss and uh, or one big factor in seagrass loss. Um, and another is, is algae blooms, um, particularly in parts of the bay where water doesn't move freely, where water sits and is stagnant. Um, 
it helps it, it it doesn't flush water out as quickly as it should and so what happens there is you have algae that sort of coagulates and sticks together and over time that sort of blankets the seagrass beds down below um, it blocks sunlight that seagrass needs to photosynthesize and over time that starts to kill off the grass and you know this grass is a key to a lot of life in the estuary it not only feeds marine mammals like manatees but it also um, is a habitat for a lot of species and so when we see these widespread widespread losses it uh it is a concern uh, not only for for scientists but also for anglers anglers are out there on the water every single day and are logging these losses every day and when you see a 12 percent loss in two years that's something to to definitely be concerned about especially at a time uh when uh you know a record number of manatees died in 2021 uh it wasn't quite as bad in 2022 in terms of mortality but uh, this seagrass uh, remains an issue. Um, uh, what are people doing to try to restore seagrass beds, particularly in old in old Tampa Bay? Yeah, um, the messaging around this is 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 pretty spot on. It's you can't just plant seagrass and expect it to survive if it's dying off because of water quality issues. You need to fix the water. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are happening right now to fix the water. Obviously, there's always more that can be done, but um, stormwater capture and, and cleaning is a big one. Um, a lot of people aren't aware that when you see these signs along storm drains in Tampa Bay that say, you know, water leads to the bay, people don't realize that that water is literally draining off of your sidewalk and going into the bay without very little uh, cleaning at all. And so... Um, scientists are looking at that as a way to start filtering nutrients that would otherwise hurt seagrass and other um, marine life in the bay. Um, that's a big one. Mm. Obviously, there are some sections where water quality is doing all right. And in those areas, you can plant seagrass in, in vast numbers because usually it'll stick mm -hmm. just like you would plant a plant in your backyard and, and put it in sunlight. Um, so you just need all the ingredients and the main ingredient right now that uh, is needed is, is good water quality. And so that is the main solution that uh, local governments and that citizens should be focusing on um, because that really is the key to a healthy ecosystem. I want to return to this in just a second, but let's welcome uh, Jimmy, who's calling from Pinellas Park. Hello. Hi, Jimmy. You're on the air. I'm just calling about uh, missing eagle nest. Um, yes, sir. Those are the largest nests of the um, birds. They can weigh up to two tons. Uh, it's hard to believe eagle nest came up missing. Max, what do you know about the size of this nest? Two tons sounds oh. pretty big to me. I mean, this nest, this nest was huge. And um, some of the neighbors that have watched it for years have said that these things are intact and they're sturdy and they are an accumulation of years of work from these birds. Um, in some of the state reports that we were reading, uh, you know, the investigator that we we had uh, re received records from, she noted that there were several sticks on the ground. Um, it was unclear as to whether or not they were from this nest. Mm. And so, you know, intuitively thinking, you know, it's 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 hard to imagine that this this nest just vanishes overnight naturally in a windstorm or a thunderstorm and so you know it's, it's hard to uh in an exact reason for how it disappeared but obviously they don't just vanish because there was no real evidence of a nest on the ground at least according to the state so it's a it's a good question um 
There are some photos in the state report that show, you know, sticks here and there along the base of the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't find any evidence of a massive nest that was sitting on the ground underneath the tree. Yeah. Thanks for that call, Jimmy, and good question. Um, let's return real quick to, uh, to seagrass, Max. Um, you know, uh, Piney Point, uh, the fertilizer uh, uh, site, the big uh, gypsum stack, which, um, uh, which officials a few years ago feared would uh, overflow uh, and had sprung a leak eventually. And then eventually the, the, the idea was to alleviate uh, uh, concerns of, a, of an entire collapse, of a whole wall collapsing by pumping uh, some um, uh, nutrient-enriched uh, water directly into Tampa Bay, straight out of the Piney Point uh, stacks. Um, and there was great fear at the time that this would, uh, in turn, fuel a uh, an outbreak of red tide. It would um, uh, uh, fuel also uh, other algal blooms that would uh, have an impact on the not only the water quality in Tampa Bay, but also uh, on those seagrass beds that we need so desperately. Um, do we know anything at all about the effects of those Piney Point discharges uh, in 2021, Max? Yeah, yeah, there are there are some emerging signs that Piney Point um, has played a role in seagrass loss. Um, in this latest report, scientists have have kept a very close eye on the seagrass beds that are directly um, directly parallel to to the plant, and there has been some measurable losses there compared to the opposite end of the bay um, at the same um, the same latitude. And so that's a sign to to scientists that uh, Piney Point has played a role in seagrass loss, particularly um, in Tampa Bay. But um, the the full scale of that is still being figured out. I think it's um, there's a lot of pieces that need to be worked out scientifically, and there's a lot of moving parts. But at least in the in the short term, there is evidence that near the plant itself, there has been losses. It wasn't just Tampa Bay. Uh, there were seagrass losses in other areas of Florida, uh, close close to us here. Sarasota Bay lost 26% of its seagrass coverage over the past six years. Um, we're talking about 500 acres between 2020 and 2022. Uh, the bay now sits at roughly 9,900 acres compared to a peak uh, seagrass coverage of 13,400 in 2016. You reported uh, all this, Max. Um, what can people do? What can we do, uh, citizens, to, um, if anything, uh, mm. to help uh, to help these seagrass beds, to help our marine friends? Yeah, I think that's you know that's that's always the ultimate question, and I think there is always things that we can do on the individual level. Um, you know, and for instance, I got this question a lot. I recently wrote about. Uh, redfish in, in Tampa Bay, and I, I'm sure you've heard of it, but right now redfish have um, high levels, not high levels, but trace amounts of... Oh, this is fascinating, of, of tramadol, of tramadol. Of, of tramadol, right. And, of, and caffeine. Of, Our fish, right. you know this spaceship? Our fish are high as kites out there, right, Max? What? <laughs> they're they're f- f- finding pharmaceuticals in the redfish. They are, yeah. So, so some recent science is showing there are trace levels of pharmaceuticals, whether it's caffeine, whether it's psychoactive drugs, um, antidepressants. There, there are drugs in our redfish, uh, albeit trace amounts. You'd have to eat, you know, forty-eight thousand fish to get a prescription dose. Um, 
but uh, but they're there, and, and, and that's a that's a significant scientific finding that what we are putting into our waters, what we humans are putting into our waters, um, is going into our wildlife and into our marine ecosystem. And so, in the case of the redfish, uh, you know, being mindful of what you're flushing, whether it's down your drain, whether it's in your toilet. Um, because that all obviously leads to the bay. So be very careful about what you're putting um, in these drains uh, and, and always be wary that uh, that there is a connection no matter what you're doing, whether you're walking on the street and you're seeing litter on the ground, um, know that there's always a connection to our natural world no matter what you're up to. Um, I also think too, you know, letting your public officials know that you care about water quality issues is always important. I think, um, a lot of times, especially nowadays, water quality issues and environmental issues can be shrouded by other things, especially in the Florida legislature this year, like education and other topics. But um, but environmental issues play a direct role on our lives and making sure public officials are aware that there is a, a public constituency that cares about these issues and uh, wants to see improvements. I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, just the smart, um, smart gardening is always a good thing too. not fertilizing, especially in the rainy months. We're approaching rainy season now. And if you were to load up your lawn with fertilizer, um, you know, that that runs off into the bay in a heavy rain. And so, you know, planting native plants that are friendly to Florida um, and encouraging native biodiversity, all of these things are good measures that the individual can take to help reversing these trends that we're seeing right now in Tampa Bay and across Florida. And certainly don't, uh, don't try to um, fertilize your lawn with tramadol. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Exactly. Thanks for that, Max. We're, we're going to keep you for a couple more minutes. I just want to remind people, if you want to call and talk to Max, uh, give us a ring here at 813-239-9663. Send me an email at dj at WMNF. Uh, org. You're listening to The Skinny on WMNF 88.5. By the way, I'm Ben Montgomery uh, here with uh, environmental reporter Max Chesnes from the Tampa Bay Times. Max, you've been at the Times for a couple of years now, right? No, actually, so I, I've been an environmental reporter for a couple of years. I worked on the East Coast of Florida as an environmental reporter for um, Treasure Coast newspapers. I actually started my first day at the Times in the environmental role uh, was just after Ian's landfall. But I was already writing about um, Ian for the times prior to being a full-time staff writer. But I've been on the environmental beat now for, oh, better part of three or four years. Where do you, uh, where, where do you, uh, where do you go to relax? I was just talking early in the hour. You might've missed this, but I was telling folks that I went out on Earth Day into the green swamp and, and did a good long hike and swam some alligators in the, in the Withlacoochee. But I'm always interested in hearing other people who enjoy the outdoors like me, uh, hearing about where they go in Florida to, uh, to, to get alone in nature, to see the wild or, or what have you. Yeah. Do you have favorite spots, man? Yeah, I sure do. Uh, locally, at least in the Tampa Bay area, my absolute favorite happy place is um, just off of Dandy Beach. Uh, there is a whole sweeping row of mangrove tunnels and mangrove islands that I paddleboard out to. I try to get that get out there at least once a week. Um, not only is it a good physical exercise to get out and paddleboard, but just immersing myself in uh, in the natural world reminds me, you know, sort of the importance of, of the work of environmental journalism. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, Gandy Bridge, right, or Gandy Beach right there with the, the mangroves is just gorgeous. There's redfish that swim through there. Now we know that they're all doped up, but they're swimming there. Um, but we also, uh, you know, we also see flounder and we see manatees and dolphins and um, just beautiful wildlife. And so I love that. I love the Everglades, uh, especially Big Cypress. I, I go there quite a bit too. It's a hike around and if you've never done a, a wet walk in Big Cypress, I highly recommend it. Have you hiked the, the Florida Trail through Big Cypress, Max? Part, uh, part of it. I haven't done the whole thing. I've uh, When I go down there, I, I like to get my feet wet. And so I'm usually on just the soggy trails that are that pop up in the summertime. Um, but if it were up to me, I would be spending hours and hours there every single, every single week. But obviously... Um, it's a bit of a commute from Tampa Bay. Yeah, right. Listen, I love this as a post, uh, post-environmental post discussion palate cleanser because we often get stuck in this. Uh, I do anyways. When I, th- when I think about the environment, I get stuck in this trap of depression. Uh, you know, one thing leads to the next, and suddenly I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm keenly aware of every piece of litter on the ground and every piece of litter floating down the Hillsborough River, and it all seems like it's, um, you know, it's going to end bad for us, like we've treated this earth in a bad way as a palate cleanser i love this like getting ideas about where we can go to still experience pristine beautiful untouched nature and um i appreciate this tip listen listeners if you have any uh, thoughts on this if you know one secret place that you just want to share with us and our friends give us a ring 813-239-9663 um, Max, the, uh, the Everglades that hike through Big Cypress, I did it a couple of years ago with three friends and, um, it is a heck of a walk. Uh, I have, uh, we are moving about one mile per hour my normal walking speed is about four miles per hour. But as you said, it's a wet walk. And so nearly every step you're up to your knees in, uh, in, in water and you're walking also across the top of limestone. And so it's a little uneven and there's fear of stepping into holes. So you kind of have to do the stingray shuffle, uh, through big Cypress. But I mean to tell you listeners, uh, it's like being on another planet uh, is. There is a stillness out there, um, and a beauty, and a and a kind of eeriness, uh, like this sort of gothic feel always settles over me when I'm in the greens. Or I'm sorry, when the, when I'm in Big Cypress, um, you yeah. know what I'm talking about, Max? Oh yeah, and the cypress domes too. If you've never been in a cypress dome, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just this vast expanse that opens up um, after a mile or two hike. And it's just quiet. You hear the water moving and it's just, I recommend it to anyone. Um, obviously leave no trace when you do go though. Uh, if you're, if you're walking through there, be sure to leave it cleaner than you found it because, um, it is a precious jewel of this state. And, uh, but I do think people need to really see it to be inspired to, to want to take care of it. And it's a really easy step to get from talking about our love of the Big Cypress to talking about the important work being done by the Florida Wildlife Corridor and the notion that um, that that's uh, protected for the future generations and that there remain about uh, you know, some millions of acres that 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 are you know that uh, folks hope to protect for future generations. This is a story you've been following, Max. Um, uh, is this? 
uh, is this a positive thing for Florida, do you think? I, I don't ever hear any criticism about the Florida Wildlife Corridor, and it kind of makes my the skeptical part of me, the, the, the skeptical uh, part of this journalist, uh, sort of step up and say, like, well, wait a minute, is there some other side that we're not looking at? What is... What, what is uh, and I, I absolutely can't find it so far. But what is what, what is um, uh, the movement, if you will, of the Florida Wildlife Corridor right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, obviously, as a journalist, it's it's good to question the efficacy of any program, right? And and whether or not it's overall beneficial. But I do think if it's getting people that would otherwise not care about Florida's environment, whether they've lived here their entire lives or whether whether they've moved here from a different state, anything that is drawing attention to to the movement, to the environmental conservation movement, to retaining and improving biodiversity, I think that's a positive thing. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you've seen Path of the Panther, um, it, it, it's, it's just now hitting, I think, streaming services. It's on Hulu now. I talked to Carlton Ward um, for the launch in the Tampa Theater a couple uh, a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, it's a powerful film. And, and it makes you, I think, proud to be a Floridian. I think mm. um, because we're, there's so much natural space here that is so tucked away from the everyday life of most of Florida, uh, I think it is important Um in that capacity, right to to be mindful of that. Now, obviously, you know there there are um, you know getting the land for the corridor is obviously a challenge, and I know um, there's a lot of people that are fighting that fight right now as far as land acquisition and, and making sure that there are lands for future years that can connect. For those that don't know what a corridor is, it's essentially um, you know an expansive sweeping. Um, trail of land that connects throughout the entire state that allows wildlife like panthers and bears and turkey and any other wild animals to to roam freely without the obstruction of of development, which of course in Florida we have a lot of. Um, so you know, in, in concept, it's a great movement. I think um, you're seeing corridors that are popping up across the nation. And there's movements to create national wildlife corridors, um, and, and scientifically, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, you're listening again to uh, WMNF, the skinny, the last few minutes of the show here. I'm Ben Montgomery. I'm talking with Tampa Bay Times environmental reporter Max Chesnes. Max, what uh, what are the big stories that, uh, that that you're working on for the for the rest of this year? What are you sort of keeping an eye on environmental from from, uh, you know, from way up in the air from your drones point of view? What are you watching? Yeah, well, water is always at the top of mind. Um, I tell people all the time, water quality is is really um, it's it's an issue worth focusing on, and that's something that I'm going to spend a lot of my time on. Um, hurricanes is a big deal. You know, Tampa Bay could have easily felt the impacts of, of Hurricane Ian, and that's not lost on a lot of our audience. Is that that could have very well been us, and so making sure that Tampa Bay is ready for another hurricane season is another priority of mine. I want to make sure. Our audience knows that they can come to us with with trusted information about not only you know not only storm storm surge but sea level rise and what our future looks like with with climate change and how how our coasts will look in, in the years to come. And so um, everything climate related is is a big focus. Uh, wildlife's a big one. I, I'm really interested in continuing the to monitor the impacts of the, the manatee die off. Um, a couple bigger investigations that we're looking and poking around on right now, but um, 
you know, still still working on those. But there's a lot. There's so much happening. Max, what's the uh, outlook just, for this year's hurricane season? You just wrote about this. We did, yeah. Um, right now, it's it's early, but they're calling for a slightly below average season, which, again, all it takes is one hurricane to really change your life. So take that with a grain of salt. But there's a confluence of factors right now. El Nino is a big one. Um, and what that will do to the formation of storms, particularly in our backyard, um, but the current forecast from Colorado State University meteorologists is slightly below. Um, but we're going to see more forecasts in the future with with NOAA. Their their forecast comes out pretty soon here, um, and obviously those change as the season unfolds. So normally, you know, just re- just prepare like it's a normal season um, because it only takes one storm, like we saw with Ian, to totally uproot everything. Um, so always be on your toes and be. Um, kept up to date. We really appreciate you joining us, Max. Uh, thanks so much, everybody. Max uh, Chesnes, who's a ta- who's an environmental reporter with the Tampa Bay Times. Um, we appreciate it. A couple of last notes here. Uh, Garrett Honeycutt, my dear friend, uh, emails to say uh, that everybody should check out Crystal Springs up 301, uh, just upstream from the Hillsborough River State Park. He says it's beautiful up there and maybe better off without public access to this area. Uh, thanks for that email, Garrett. We sure appreciate it. And uh, and Susan uh, Shonder writes in, uh, if I tell you about my secret place, it's no longer a secret, uh, especially on the air. She's laughing. Uh, telling us that uh, no, we don't get it. So we're glad. We're glad though to share that. Sometimes I'm going to talk Susan out of this secret, and uh, and broadcast it widely, or maybe not. Maybe uh, I'll keep it to myself. Thank you for joining us for listening to the Skinny on WMNF uh, today. I'm Ben Montgomery, and I'm signing off. <laughs>